0: Hello and welcome to the second in our Markets in Conflict podcast series brought to you by Argus Media. My name is Tom and I'm the VP of Crude and Products for China at Argus and I'm joined today by two of my esteemed colleagues, Kevin Foster, Editorial Manager Asia and Heike Guggeratz, Associate Editor at Argus and resident expert on US and international energy policy and politics. Welcome to you both. Um, Guys, the Market and Conflict podcasts provide our unique view on the impact that war in Russia and Ukraine is having on commodity markets. In this episode, we're going to take a strategic look at the implications for China. And I'm going to start with you, Kevin, if I may. Beijing has taken, since Russia's invasion, a studdedly neutral line on the war. What would you say we can infer from that are China's main strategic considerations? What is its cost-benefit analysis, you might say?
1: Okay, thanks, Tom, and uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, The way I'd like to answer that question is maybe to go back a few months, um, specifically to the 4th of February. So that's about three weeks before Russia invaded Ukraine. And that was on the eve of the Beijing Olympics, and uh, Vladimir Putin was in Beijing, he was meeting for Xi Jinping, and that's the day that Russia and China unveiled what they called this no-limits partnership, pledging this really deep, unlimited cooperation on a huge range of issues. So, for example, China agreed to back Russia's stance opposing NATO expansion in Eastern Europe. Russia gave its backing for China's position on Taiwan, and the two made clear that their wider strategic goals were really to try to challenge and overturn this US-led liberal international order. So we don't know, I think, how much what was about to happen in Ukraine was discussed, but I thought it'd be interesting Interesting. to do a little counterfactual and consider what the world might have looked like had things gone to plan for Putin in Ukraine, had, for example, the Russian military just swept into Kyiv, had the Ukrainian government collapsed, and had Russia achieved what its war aims were. So I think in that kind of world, it's very clear that Beijing could have benefited. What you could have seen, for example, is that the the fallout from this would have really driven a wedge into the US-European alliance. It would have split these allies. Potentially, it would have highlighted the impotence of the US I mean, following on from this foreign policy disaster in Afghanistan last year. It would have made the US seem that it was really just ineffective and no longer the leading power on the world stage. It would have exposed what I think Xi and Putin very clearly see as the decadence of the West. So Beijing would have been left with a strengthened authoritarian ally in Moscow. And really, it would have had a template for its own strategic ambitions in East Asia, most particularly what it wants to do in terms of bringing Taiwan back into the fold. So all this, I think, if it had happened this way, would have strengthened Beijing and would have weakened the U.S., and so I think you can see why Xi was pretty happy to sign this, you know, what they call this No Limits Friendship Pact. But as it turned out, that was a gamble by Xi. And as things look now, it looks like that gamble's failed. because you look at actually what's happened. So Russia has been exposed as a much weaker, much less reliable ally than Beijing had thought. This US-led liberal world order that she hates so much has actually put together a much stronger response in terms of its backing for Ukraine uh, and the sanctions that it's imposed on Russia. And China, at the very least, faced the prospect of having to choose between this alliance with Russia and its friendly or relatively friendly trade relationships between the US and EU, which in terms of importance to its economy, they completely outweigh the relationship with Russia. And not least, of course, the prices of crude and other commodities that China imports huge amounts of. They've gone through the roof. And that's really been damaging for the Chinese economy you know, at a time when the zero COVID policies and the time when the economic weakness were already really weighing on growth. So China might have thought it had this win-win deal with Russia, but you know, thanks to the shortcomings of the Russian military, thanks to the fact the Ukrainian resistance was so much stronger than anyone had expected, what China might have thought was this great strategic masterstroke. It looks to me like, in fact, it's actually more of a strategic disaster. So as you say, Tom, that's why I think Russia has taken this very careful line and this no limits partnership so far in practice actually turns out to have lots of limits.
0: I think that's a really interesting point. And that came out of, I suppose, a fairly hubristic kind of interpretation of how China had flourished in the months immediately after the pandemic. Of course, you know, it, it came out of lockdown very rapidly in 2020 2021 for china's economy was extremely strong while the western economies were ailing and i think that may have engendered a sense of the new normal being an ascendant china and a weakened west but i would add to that it's not like there's been a fundamental reassessment of the world and the balance of power in the world necessarily uh, as a result of the failure of the russian military in fact if we look at china it's interesting to note that domestically, there's still a near veneration of Vladimir Putin in Chinese domestic media. And that's not necessarily just state-owned outlets, People's Daily, but also with very hawkish and jingoistic online commentariat that's flourished during the current administration. And that, I think, in itself is notable, uh, because those are the sorts of voices that previous Chinese administrations might very well have tamped down. But since Donald Trump began the trade war with China, they've actually been harnessed to mobilize popular anti-American sentiment. Let's not forget President Xi Jinping's chief ideologue, a man called Wang Huning, famously authored a book in the 90s which asserted the inevitable implosion of US democracy. But I think it is worth also adding that there are dissenting voices in China. You know, we've seen commentaries published by people like Gao Yusheng, China's former ambassador to Ukraine, Hu Wei from the Shanghai Public Policy Research Center, who argue very much against backing Russia. But these are minority voices whose views have been censored in China. And nonetheless, though, I do think they make uh, very clear-eyed observations about Russia's military and economic limitations and the risks to China in allying itself unquestioningly to Moscow. And they suggest that war will actually serve to unite and strengthen the West to China's disadvantage. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. I think it would be fair to say that the outcome so far has maybe been more a testament to the uh, weakness of Russia and the strength of Ukraine than necessarily the unity of the West. But let's pan it back a second and turn to you Haik. US President Joe Biden visited Japan and South Korea in May to outline a new Indo-Pacific economic framework for prosperity for countries in Asia that aren't China, essentially. But to what extent has the Ukraine conflict distracted Washington from its previous foreign policy focus of containing China?
2: Hi, Tom. Hi, Kevin. Good to be with you. And a big shout out to our listeners. And yes, Biden is now the second president to declare a pivot to Asia and then be dragged into a major crisis elsewhere. If you remember, Barack Obama, whom Biden served as vice president, had to deal with Ukraine, had to deal with ISIS, uh, despite declaring China to be a greater priority. So with trip and the IPF, this economic proposal, are meant to signal that the US is serious about the region. The White House unrolled with China's strategy just a few weeks ago, and the declaration here is that China is the only country with both the intention and the means to challenge the post-Cold War order. China, by comparison to Russia, has a much bigger economy. It's much more diversified, so the focus on China has not gone away, and so with Strip and some of Biden's remarks show that we can even call that trolling. Biden needled Beijing on a subject of economic growth that Kevin mentioned earlier. There was a report that conveniently came out right before his trip saying that China's GDP was here will grow slower than U.S. economy. For the first time since 1976, Biden publicly offered to provide U.S.-manufactured COVID vaccines to China, knowing that. In the Chinese state media, there is questioning of their safety and so forth. And this IPF deal itself is an implicit challenge to China. It's not a trade deal like the former TPP, which the U.S. once championed and now China wants to join. It's not the RCIP which Beijing has now offered as an alternative. The IPF is in line with the White House new trade policy of French Roaring, its economic blocks based on shared economic and political understandings. But of course the war in Ukraine constrains the US from for maneuver. It constrains its resources. Just look at this numbers. Congress, at Biden's request, has allocated $54 billion to arm and fund Ukraine. That's a billion. By comparison, Southeast Asian leaders whom Biden hosted in Washington in May were promised 40 million. 40 million in, in clean energy focused developmental finance. So there is that gap. That's a big gap. uh, Indeed. And so despite everything else, U.S.-China relations are increasingly revolving around military security issues, and that leaves less room for diplomacy. And by the way, no matter what else Biden said in Tokyo, it's his comments about uh, U.S. readiness to defend Taiwan that delivered the biggest shock to the Chinese government. So of course, U.S. for decades promised to enable Taiwan to defend itself, but Biden is saying the quiet part out loud and moreover, he compared a hypothetical Chinese attack on Taiwan to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So you can sense this triumphalism in this remarks because with 100 days plus more into this war, well, it looks like maybe uh, to unqualified observers anyway, that China would similarly struggle to conquer Taiwan. So I have a question for you, Kevin. Does China view the West as reinvigorated now, and then how specifically it affects its discussions of Taiwan, how they view the American statements on Taiwan.
0: Yeah, that's a really good question, isn't it? I mean, I think some people have even been dusting off their Francis Fukuyama again. Is the time right
1: for that? you would be brave, very brave, to predict the end of history at the moment, given I think everything that's <laughs> happening in the world. But um, but yeah, it's it's a key concern and um. Tom, I do agree with what you said earlier, that the jury's still out very much on the strength of this U.S.-European alliance, how sustainable it is and how much it will hold over Ukraine. But I definitely think that at least the prospect of a reinvigorated West... And this strengthened US-led system of alliances. It's a major concern for the uh, for Beijing. It's a major concern for Xi Jinping. And I suspect it's actually one of the reasons that she's quietly cursing Putin under his breath for making such a mess of the invasion of Ukraine and really leaving China in what I think is a very um, very dangerous position.
0: At the same time, they will also presumably watch uh, recent developments in Europe where we are seeing fractures in the anti-Russian coalition in places like Estonia, where the prime minister has just resigned, and it seems very clear that the West isn't necessarily unified still.
2: If I may jump, ultimately all sides bear costs, right? I mean, you know, there is the rise in energy prices, the rise in inflation. So we don't know what happens a year from now. I mean, is, is how much is a public in a democratically elected society is willing to put up with economic hardship. So far, uh, everyone has rallied. I mean, in three months more, everyone has rallied behind their governments. You know, the support for Ukraine is uh, pretty strong. But yes, I mean, that's it's the big difference between democratically elected societies and those that are yeah. not.
0: But uh, just to come back to Kevin, because I'm sorry, we, we did interrupt you. Uh, what do you think that this does mean for discussions about Taiwan? Do you think that China's calculus has changed there?
1: Well, I think you were right earlier, Hike, when you said that everything that Biden's done in Asia, and you look back at some of the, the pretty intense moves, there was that nuclear submarine deal that was signed between the US, Australia and UK last year, even some of those hard power moves, some of the um, the moves on trade. Nothing, I think, has disturbed Beijing nearly as much as the prospect of Biden and the US taking a much tougher policy on Taiwan. Now, China, as we know, it views Taiwan as this renegade province. And I think Xi Jinping has hinted several times that he really wants to achieve the, the reunification, as he sees it, of Taiwan when it's uh, uh, on his watch. It's difficult to say, but I think there are probably two ways you can look at how the situation in Ukraine is affecting the calculus over Taiwan. So on the one hand, China might look at all the weapons that the U.S. and its allies are pouring into Ukraine, you know, the 50 billion dollars or whatever it is of funding that the U.S. has given. Uh, It might in particular look at these unexpectedly tough financial sanctions that were imposed on Russia and the prospect that we might be hit with those at some point as well. Again, I think China has clearly had to recalculate its assessment of the strength of the Russian military. That Russian military is clearly underperformed in Ukraine. China, remember, makes a very big deal of the fact that it's it's got a peaceful rise. It hasn't fought a war for 50 years almost now. But, you know, China, when it comes down to it, probably doesn't know how the PLA is going to perform an yeah. actual situation uh, like the takeover of Taiwan. So and China the, and she might just look at all these factors and think, OK, this goal we have to take over Taiwan is going to be a lot more difficult and a lot more costly than yeah. we uh, than we previously thought.
0: Now, one thing I just wanted to follow up on, and I realise it's slightly out of our remit, not being military experts, but of course, you know, China's always maintained that history's on its side when it comes to reunification with Taiwan. Has, do you think, the way in which NATO managed to arm and retrain Ukrainian military since Russia's capture of Crimea in, in 2014, changed the timeframe for that? Do you think that there is a danger that Beijing could want to accelerate reunification.
1: This is the alternative, and this is what, frankly, is a much scarier option. The Beijing might look at everything that's happened and take the absolute opposite lesson. It might think that, hold on, the longer we wait, the risks are going to rise, and the tougher it's going to be to actually achieve our aims here. So I think we saw some reports not so long ago that the U.S. was now working much more closely with the Taiwanese government to actually shape Taipei's military purchases. To actually, you know, move Taiwan away from these kind of big tickets, very glamorous purchases towards actually buying weapons that would help to turn yeah. an invasion. And really, if you look at what's happening in Ukraine, it's actually like it's a, it's a template for how to do this. You know, there are so many lessons learned about what works and what doesn't yeah. when you're a small country trying to deter a big country. So Beijing might look at all this There's risks either way, but maybe the the lower risk is to act soon. And that's scary. I mean, there's a lot to worry about in the world, but that might be something that um, would add to the risk we're facing in the next few years.
0: Yes, it has been a sort of a very low budget defense of Ukraine, hasn't it? It's been drones, it's been anti-tank missiles. I wonder if we could come on now maybe to the uh, energy security dividend that China stands to potentially gain from the uh, division of energy markets, commodity markets, because uh, certainly from where I'm sitting, there are certainly huge potential benefits to China arising from its political proximity to Moscow. You know, it's the single largest buyer of Russian crude. It currently buys it at heavily discounted rates, and that obviously follows the an embargo of Russian imports by the US and its allies, the EU, UK, South Korea, Japan. And we've seen this two-speed market emerge in China, and in fact, the world, for sanctioned and unsanctioned uh, oil, or, or pariah and non-pariah oil, I suppose, Russian oil isn't sanctioned with you know, staple grades that China used to import, like two P now trading around $13 a barrel over grades like Espo, uh, which other countries won't take, and the replacement of a lot of Atlantic Basin crude with Russian grades, which technically, as I say, are unsanctioned. But the West continues to ratchet up these sanctions. This is a hot topic at the moment. And it's just announced plans to bar Western insurers from providing cover for vessels carrying Russian oil. That could be hugely disruptive. Since tensions with the U.S. really blew up in 2018 with the trade war, China's taken various steps to protect itself from sanctions. China merchants, Costco, companies like this, they've shifted a lot of their coverage from international insurers, largely based out of London uh, and other Western capitals to Shanghai. But still, their Chinese fleets, They're large, but they're still not big enough to handle all the displaced Russian crude, or to meet Chinese demand, uh, actually retain an exposure to Western sanctions through reinsurance markets, which again remain a kind of largely UK focused affair. And there's the question of just how much oil and gas. Russia can reroute to China, given the geographical and capacity constraints of its pipeline network. You know, the, the crude pipelines running from Russia to China via Kazakhstan in the west or Heilongjiang province in the east of China, they're technically full. Do you think, uh, just to turn it back to you, Hike. do you think we're seeing a backlash against US dollar dominance of global finance? Is or will the renminbi take a bigger chunk Of global trade, do you think?
2: Yes and no. First one, and then no to the second one. So, if you look at the last 20 years, yes, the share of dollar in global financial transactions and global reserves has declined. I just looked up uh, IMF data. The share of dollar in global reserves used to be 70% at the start of the century. Now it's roughly 60%. So, there is a 12 point decline in that share. But interestingly, Yuan has not grown as much. So most of it comes from use of currencies such as Canadian dollar, Australian dollar, Swiss francs, and so forth. Beijing is not willing to make Yuan truly a freely convertible international currency. And so long as it doesn't, the role of renminbi is not going to be big. It's interesting relative to the size of its economy. China is the second the largest global economy. but Renminbi is only 3% of global reserves. Actually, if you put Canadian dollar and Australian dollar together, it's a bigger share. Mind you, a third of foreign yuan reserves is held by Russia. And uh, it probably wish they had a bigger share because when the war started, the biggest and the most underappreciated impact of this war is the freezing of the Russian central bank reserves. To the tune of 300 billion dollars worth its dollars and euros so long as china keeps its capital control so long as it prevents uh, its currency from being truly convertible i don't think we will see it taking a bigger chunk of a global trade uh, even
0: if we see uh, the redenomination of a lot of commodity trade in rmb do you think it's, it's certainly to you know to to russia do you think that might have an impact on Increasing the renminbi's role.
2: So far, we've seen Iranian trade into China be priced in renminbi. Of course, then we have to spend it in um, in Chinese markets. And when the Russian exports, let's assume all of their exports go to China, which I'm going to ask you how much do you think will go actually. But that's still uh, roughly seven percent of global oil trade. So the advantage of having a dollar is it's a multi-trillion. Dollar market. There is so much liquidity that you can do whatever you want with your money. So the question is, what do you do with yuan? I mean, do you do you invest it in China, and when you are locked in into a market from which you may not necessarily be able to export and freely repatriate your money? But uh, I am actually curious, how much do you think China uh, will absorb with suddenly reoriented Russian market?
0: Well, I mean, and I, I can only really, I think, talk with any confidence about oil. It's a very small market for Russian products. You know, most Russian gas oil went to Europe. Most VGO to the, uh, Europe and, and the U.S. and places like that. Chinese imports of Russian products have been have been very small. They've been little bits of NAFTA, which China is short. Uh, little bits of fuel oil, but China's refining system is vast, and currently. Underutilized to the tune of possibly as much as five million barrels of capacity per day. It's like the single biggest repository of unused capacity. So they don't need uh, Russian uh, refined products. They need Russian crude. But then again, I come back to the issue of just the physical and the legal constraints facing China. The pipelines are pretty much operating at capacity. You you can't ship any more Russian crude, really into northeast China, the ESPO pipeline system, uh, either out via Cosmino on the Sea of Japan uh, coastline or through the pipeline because it's running at capacity. You can't ship any more really into west China via Kazakhstan because first Russia would need to de-bottleneck that pipeline in order to reach capacity. But even, even if it did, that crude oil would then be trapped in Xinjiang province. It can't move to the demand centers in the east of the country. Alternatively, move it by sea. Well, then we come back to the issue of sanctions. I think it'll be really interesting to see, actually, whether there is a marked decline in euros flows to China relative to what we we saw in April, May, because of these EU sanctions. Sorry, Kevin, do come in on that, please.
1: I think this question about how much Russian oil is going to new destinations is a really, really interesting one. And Tom, you say that Russia is already a major exporter to China. China, its top two buyers have been Russia and Saudi Arabia for a long time. But it's interesting to compare what we've seen with another major importer, which is India. Um, India, which is nominally a US ally, is certainly a lot friendlier to the US than China is. And historically, it's not been a big buyer of Russian crude I and mean, last year it took something like 50,000 barrels a day, which is a tiny proportion of its imports. And it just doesn't make sense for India to buy. It's very close to the Mid-East Gulf. It's, uh, it's a lot closer to some exporters in Africa than it is to Russia. But we've just been looking at some unofficial shipping data for India's Russian imports in, say, the last few days of May and the first week or so of June. And those imports are running at about 1.1 million barrels a day, wow. which is an enormous increase. And it's really interesting that to some extent under the radar, India has been picking up its uh, mm. imports from Russia so much and much more proportionally than I think that uh, uh, and China That
0: has. is phenomenal. I mean, Russian exports, crude exports to China kind of average around one and a half million barrels a day. So that takes India up to a very comparable level with the scale of Chinese imports. And China has historically been uh, Russia's single largest national crude export destination. That is phenomenal. But it'll be really interesting to see, I think, what Indian companies do in response to sanctions. Because, you know, let's not forget, in 2019, the US sanctioned Costco China reacted by onshoring a lot of its insurance risk. Indian shipping companies, uh, Shipping Corporation of India, were never sanctioned. They have not had to make those contingency plans. And so there is, I think, a chance that these sanctions could prove very disruptive. We could see Indian companies really scrambling to find alternative ways to insure and reinsure those cargoes. I think it's a very volatile situation. Guys, I think we're running out of time. If I can just conclude. Just one more question, and then I promise I will draw a veil over this uh, whole debate. What I want to know is, how do you see the West-Russia-China relationship evolving? Let's start with you, Kevin.
1: So I think it's important to note these very early days. There's a lot that could change at the moment. A lot depends, I think, on the sustainability of the Western alliance that we talked about earlier. If you look at Russia-China, I mean, on the face of it, as we've discussed, they have a lot in common. They're both authoritarian governments. Uh, they both see the U.S. as their main strategic enemy. they both pretty clear that they, they've they got this stake in overturning and eroding this U.S.-led liberal international order. And of course, they've got this really symbiotic energy relationship that Russia's the big exporter and China's the big buyer. So on the face of it, there are these common interests. But if you dig a bit deeper, then I have real doubts about how sustainable this relationship is going to be in the longer term. There's this uh, really interesting kind of festering competition for influence in Central Asia, which has historically at least recently been in Russia's purview and where China is now making a lot more inroads. The two have this long history of territorial disputes about along their long land border. And it was only sort of 50 odd years ago they're actually fighting a war. So I'm not sure really how sustainable it is. And if you look on a deeper level, um, China is all about stability. Anyway, the, the Communist Party is very clear that it, it's got the, these interests in political stability domestically, in the you know stability of its near-term environment, in, in the stability of the economic system that's allowed it to grow. Now I think you can make an argument that Xi Jinping is starting to challenge I was this and, make that point. and yeah, overturn yeah, yeah, yeah. it. But not, I think, enough that, you know, to really change China's interests here. Russia, on the other hand, it's got this vested interest in instability. You know, it's a revanchist power. It's um, it's potentially declining because mm. it's so dependent on energy exports that the more uncertainty there is geopolitically, the more it benefits.
2: Because of point. that,
1: yeah. I don't see this relationship lasting in the long term.
0: Hike, let's finish with you. What is your take as a gentleman of Europe? Uh Sorry, the Caucasus. Um, <laughs> What is your take on how this relationship is going to
1: develop?
2: You know, you threw uh, uh, a Fukuyama at me. I have to get back to you with a uh, Kissinger. So, before the war, there was this idea floating around in Washington uh, that with enough incentives, the US and Russia could actually find common ground against China. So, a uh, reverse Kissinger. Uh, of course, Let's not even discuss the merits of that idea because it's dead. The war and the decoupling between the West and Russia have buried that idea. And actually Russia is in a worse state because we have these massive sanctions that are getting worse and worse and they will probably remain in place for years. At least uh, from the U.S. perspective, the objective is quote-unquote strategic defeat of Moscow. Take it in any way uh, you want to interpret it. Uh, So that leaves China. But the idea of China as the main antagonist of the West is popular here in Washington with both political parties. And it has been popular for some time. It's not just Biden and Trump. I think it will outlive the Biden presidency. The one issue
0: unifying America.
2: The one issue unifying America indeed. So in practical terms, it's leading to a revival of what used to be called an industrial policy basically trying to replicate the China 2025 plan. There is growing support for near-shoring supply chains, for uh, making sure that critical minerals and high technologies are originating and trading in places that are actually part of the same uh, quote-unquote Western world. But at the same time, The world's two largest economies are too big to separate, the world is too complex, it's too interconnected to divide anything into neat piles of friends and enemies. It's been true in the first Cold War, it's true now. If climate change is a big priority, you cannot address it without cooperating with China. The Biden administration, unlike its predecessor, does not believe that China does not need to be engaged. So they have a different take. They view it as a competition. Actually, they put it in ideological terms. I was uh, listening to Tony Blinken talk about the China strategy. He said that China thinks its model is the better one, that a party-led centralized system is more efficient uh, than a democracy. And- Biden believes that ultimately democratic societies are better at solving problems. So if you frame it as a competition, it's less dangerous, obviously, than a war. So there is still room there for trade, there is still room there for energy trade. But we will see, right? I mean, to go back to the points that we made earlier, the stability in practical terms means Mr. Xi gets to stay in power longer than any elected a western leader and that affects it so we will see tune yeah. back uh, for our next podcast in a few years yeah. so <laughs> that is great we must wrap it up there
0: thank you kevin thank you hike thank you to all our listeners for sitting through this latest uh, edition of markets in conflict if you have any questions any feedback do please get in touch with us via the website that's all from us thank you very much indeed and goodbye